how we express and work with joy, contentment, and fearlessness in our daily lives. Presenters offer a guided meditation or contemplation practice and invite reflections, comments, and questions from participants about the poignancy and complexity of our shared journey on planet Earth. Thank you for joining us for this week's Shambhala Sunday Gathering podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's Shambhala Sunday Gathering with Acharya Simmer Brown. My name is Faraday Rudy, and I will be your host for this week's Sunday Gathering. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, before we get going, I just want to let you know that there is an interpretation feature this week for Spanish. I can see we have people from all over, um, California, Seattle, Madrid, uh, Santiago. Um, so lots of different parts of the world represented here today. Thank you all so much for being here. Each week for Shambhala Sunday gatherings, uh, we invite a, a guest presenter, uh, someone in our community to present on a, a Dharma talk or a project or initiative that they're working on to lead us in some sort of community practice and, and then to have some discussion. At this time, it is my great pleasure to introduce um, Acharya Judah Simmer-Brown. Acharya Simmer-Brown has recently retired as Distinguished Professor of Contemplative and Religious Studies at Naropa University, where she is a founding faculty member. She serves on the board of the Society of Buddhist Christian Studies and has been active in interreligious dialogue internationally since the 1980s. She directed the Naropa Dialogues, 1981 to 1988, was a member of the Cobb Abe Theological Encounter, 1984 to 2004, and the Gethsemani Encounters, 1996 and 2002. Her books are Dakini's Warm Breath, The Feminine Principle in Tibetan Buddhism, Benedict's Dharma, Buddhist's Comment on the Rule of St. Benedict, and Meditation and the Classroom, Contemplative Pedagogy in the Religious Studies Classroom. Acharya Simmer-Brown is here today to speak about deepening through dialogue. And uh, for the first time, we're actually uh, doing something a little special, which is a two-part Shambhala Sunday gathering. So we can go a little bit deeper into this material. Um, you don't have to attend both parts. And if you want to invite others to come along next week, they don't have to have attended this week in order to attend part two. So uh, please don't worry about that. But part one today is going to be focusing more on Chugyam Trungpa Rinpoche and his teachings on dialogue. And then part two next week will focus a little more on the actual uh, practice of dialogue. So with that, uh, Acharya Simmer-Brown, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your wisdom with us. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Faraday, and thank you, Gabriella, for being uh, our translator today. Uh, appreciate both of you so much. Shall we begin with a bow? Lovely to see uh, many familiar faces and new faces, and delighted today to be able to share one of the topics close to my heart that I, do, I very rarely share in a Shambhala context. I'm delighted to have a chance to do that. 
We're living in a time of such breakdown in ordinary civil discourse and where the tolerance for difference has broken down so dramatically that we have major divisions and splits in our national and global communities. And with uh, the advent of social media, we seem to be losing any ability to relate to people who have ideas and perspectives different from our own. And so this is the reason I wanted to talk about this topic today, because especially during the pandemic, as we have been on Zoom and social media so much, we've witnessed the fruits of the breakdown of this kind of civil discourse and ability to be in community with diverse peoples. This is a serious threat to the peace and harmony of the world. It certainly is a threat to one of the founding visions of Shambhala of creating enlightened society. So this presentation and the one next week is focusing on dialogue with an emphasis on inter-religious dialogue. But you could say that the skills that I'll be teaching skills, especially next week, the skills can be brought to any kind of discourse with anyone who's different from you, which means basically everybody in, in our lives. I've learned that dialogue skills help in intimate relationships, within families, within uh, communities and neighborhoods, in the workplace, in many, many different situations. And I've been teaching interreligious dialogue at Naropa University for about 20 to 25 years, and have found that my students have reported that learning about dialogue and the skills of dialogue has helped them enormously in every level of relationship in their lives. I would like to begin with a short contemplation and uh, you could say a practice. So if you could take good posture. And bring yourself now into the present moment. Placing your mindfulness on breathing. And in this, drop down into your body the feeling of being in the present moment. And we'll just sit for a few, few moments before we begin the contemplation. At this point, if you could close your eyes 
And I'd like to ask you to remember some time of encounter in your life. I mean, most of us haven't been out and about, so certainly not necessarily recently, but sometime in your life when you encountered someone who was religiously and spiritually, perhaps culturally and in other ways, very different from you. Someone you knew very little about their religious framework or practices, their beliefs, their orientations and worldview, and pick one such moment of encountering someone It could be early in life or any time in your adulthood. And if you have a number of these that come to mind, think of an encounter that was significant in some way, either positively or negatively. And as you tune in to this experience, visualize yourself back in that situation. When we're talking here about a personal encounter, not someone you saw in a YouTube video or that you saw on Zoom, but someone who you met in person or saw in person. Perhaps you visited a worship service of someone of another tradition. Whenever you found yourself on uncertain ground, religiously, spiritually, culturally, go to that moment and tune into your sense perceptions at that moment, the, the feeling tone of that encounter. Tune into the emotional feel of that encounter. And now whatever thoughts arose in that encounter. And stay with this feeling, the sense perceptions, emotions, and thoughts arising from an encounter with a religious, cultural, spiritual other. What was your experience? And now you can let this contemplation go and return to just a few minutes of sitting, present with breathing, feeling the, the after effect of the experience you just visited.
and let the whole thing go. Thank you. And uh, perhaps I could ask if maybe four people could give me just a brief uh, report on your experience doing this, if you could raise your hand. Uh, unfortunately, there's not time for all of you to share. If, if a few of you could indicate your experience doing this contemplation. So um, we have someone from Boston. Please go ahead. Yeah. Um, oh, it's Bridge. So, hi. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Acharya. Very nice to see you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so uh, several moments came to mind, and thank you for the contemplation. And um, so in my case, um, my first, uh, there were many encounters early in life, but I'll talk about the one that was momentous or that transformed me. And if you uh, could speak especially not describing the situation as much as what was your experience yes encountering difference very very brief just your experience yes so uh, I was not into spirituality then or Buddhism or anything so my first encounter was actually meeting uh, Tupton Kalsang Rinpoche in Boston and he was dressed in ordinary clothes like he was not in robes and uh, I'd also learned that he was working in a liquor store or something to make a living or whatever at the time. So, so I just, from a distance, I saw this ordinary person, you know. And then uh, I was in a class or something because a friend had dragged me there and he couldn't speak English very well. So my direct sensory experience and uh, the mind went into judgment, assessment, Oh, here is an ordinary person. However, when I came close to him, there was a, okay, just in that, at the end of the class, his eyes, they were so limpid and his face was smiling and a warmth entered my heart. And then I forgot that. I had no distinction, realized masters, non-duality or anything, you know? And so simultaneously the judgment, the ordinary man in the street clothes or whatever. And then this limpid, like the soul of his eyes or whatever. And then many years later, then I recall that moment and I realized who I had met with more, you know, such experiences So just wanted to share Thank that. you. Perfect bridge. Thank you so much. So Lorraine is next. This was many years ago when I was working uh, for what used to be Bell South. I ended up doing a, uh, I, was, I was working on a project where we were working with one of our vendors and I was working with this Muslim gentleman. And uh, I was a bit put off because he's, he seemed to have a bit of a, of a, what do you call it, dismissive attitude towards me. And then we went out to lunch one time. He wanted to go to this Middle Eastern restaurant. We go to the Middle Eastern restaurant and he orders lunch for me without, without asking me. But then the last time I met with him, and I only met with him a few times, he gave me a copy of the Quran. And that was the last time I ever saw him. 
So my my so what, was your, what was your what was your feeling? I want to know how you felt. Not so much what happened. I felt that he kind of looked down his nose at women. Yeah. Okay. But I was just, you know, I'm not really an engineer. I'm just not much more than a secretary who was. Yeah, he's, he just needs to dictate stuff to me. Tell me how things are going to be. Tell me how this project's going to going to go. Thank you, Lorraine. That's very helpful. Again, encounters aren't always positive. Many times yeah. they aren't. <laughs> Thank you. And Jerry. Uh, this is from the, from the Peace Corps in Afghanistan. Uh, I was in an Afghan village, not in the capital, and uh, having a very difficult time because members of the community didn't accept my presence there even though at the school it felt, you know, very workable. But uh, even to the point of having small rocks thrown at me at a, at a distance, that kind of situation. And uh, some of my students invited me to the mosque that they belonged to. So I went there and I was there about 20 minutes. There wasn't much to see, but they said the mullah would like to meet you. So I went into this room and... Uh, there were four of my students and my, the mullah and myself, and I could speak some Farsi. He couldn't speak any English, so it was really a vast translation issue. Can but, you talk about your immediate yeah, experience, that, especially? Not the story, exactly, but yeah. That's what I'm getting to, so you okay. understand it. Okay, so there were things like, where is God? Okay, and... I had to be careful how to answer it because I can't say I particularly had a belief in God, but I would, you know, in a different sense, I could say God is everywhere. He's in this room. He's, you know, that kind of answer. And I felt as I kept going, very joyous being with him. And uh, it was like the students being there, there was some kind of, of sharing. Uh, I still felt like I had to remain careful but nevertheless, I felt accepted. And after that, I heard he gave a speech the following uh, Saturday at the uh, mosque. And he said, uh, the mullah is a good man. I mean, the, sorry about that. The mister is a good man, and uh, meaning me. And uh, even though he's not of our religions, we should respect him. Okay, I found this out several months later from my students, what he had said, but I asked one of my students, well, why, why is it that that just sort of stopped that not allowing me to be in the village? And he said, because of what the mullah said. So I, I really felt like he changed my life, changed my life there. So, so the, the, the immediate feeling you had was first, um, just to, to paraphrase what I'm hearing you saying is, which is what I'm asking, at first a little cautious, a little nervous, and then joyous. Well, I felt joyous, but nevertheless, always cautious. Yes. In a powerless position in, in that particular situation. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much, Jerry. And one more, Celeste, and then we'll move along. These, these sessions are so short. Um, just real quickly, I uh, was in a situation where at first I felt um, connected, sort of just um, we were in a situation that was social, 
and it felt um, friendly and we had some things in common. So um, it just felt quite okay. And I felt like I could be myself. And then the person said a couple of things that just stopped me short because it, I realized all of a sudden that we had very little actually in common in terms of um, our opinions about things. Um, and I felt suddenly left out in the cold that mm-hmm. the connection was completely gone. Yeah. Yes, okay. These are wonderful examples of when we encounter a difference, the, the variety of responses that can come. And many of those responses come from social conditioning or just simply not knowing or whatever. And so our challenge is what do, how do we open to the possibility of meeting difference, meeting otherness, particularly on the ground of, social, of spirituality and religion? And of course, this is very perilous ground because there's been so much violence and harm in the name of religion. And so this is, this is the backdrop of what I'd like to talk about. So I got into interreligious dialogue primarily because I was commanded to by Choyam Trobo Rinpoche, my teacher, uh, shortly after I came to work full-time at Naropa. And I do feel uh, it, an incredible blessing that I got dragged somewhat kicking and screaming into interreligious dialogue and it has become a very important part of my life. I want to talk first about Rinpoche and about his remarkable approach to dialogue. And I have to say that he did not give formal teachings on interreligious dialogue. It was much more how he worked behind the scenes and watching him in dialogue with others. Rinpoche was raised in a very insular culture. And as a Tibetan Buddhist monk and Rinpoche, he likely encountered very little religious difference, except the difference between the various schools in Tibet. And certainly in Tibet, there were Muslims but they were always in the minority and always on the fringe, especially in East Tibet, where Rinpoche was raised. You can imagine that when he left Tibet in 1959, fleeing the Chinese with a large group of people, that he hadn't exactly been trained in interreligious dialogue per se. But I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. He described in a variety of settings, and again, he talked about dialogue in more informal conversational settings. He described that his first encounter with Christians was once he was a refugee in India, Christian missionaries showed up with uh, parcels of food and milk powder and uh, gave food and uh, then very much with the expectation that now you're going to uh, hear some pitch for conversion. So he very quickly caught on that missionaries, while uh, very kind to the Tibetan refugees, had strings attached in what they were 
offering. When he went to England to study at Oxford University, he was a rare young Tibetan in being uh, chosen for a Spalding Fellowship to go to the UK and to study at Oxford. And when he arrived at Oxford, he was assigned a tutor who was a Catholic priest. Actually, at that point, Father Dejeeve, who's Belgian, uh, Father Dejeeve was a Jesuit at that point from Belgium and was at Oxford as a part-time faculty member and tutor. And he introduced Rinpoche to features of Christianity and world religions because the Vidyadara was studying world religions at Oxford. And he and Rinpoche had many conversations. Father Dejeev, by the way, died in uh, just last year at the age of 106. And he and I carried on a correspondence about his connection with the Vidyadara and about the uh, time they spent together. So Father Dejeev introduced Rinpoche to the Catholic mass and Rinpoche was terribly curious about the vestments and the ritual. And he wondered, uh, you know, why not everybody was wearing vestments? He had a lot of curiosity about things. Uh, Father Dejeev also took him around the UK to meet different religious and spiritual figures. And Rinpoche made a connection with, uh, for example, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, who was a high ranking patriarch of Russian Orthodoxy in the UK. And Rinpoche loved Father Anthony Bloom. Also an elderly Franciscan uh, monk, who I never could find out what his name was, who Rinpoche was really drawn to. And Rinpoche met a bunch of other uh, religious clerics in the UK and was always terribly curious. And Father Dejeev and he carried on a very active dialogue about uh, things. Uh, Rinpoche uh, said that his main irritation with Father Dejeev is that Father Dejeev tried to persuade him that Christianity and Buddhism were just the same. And Rinpoche knew that was not the case. When Rinpoche went to India on his way to Bhutan in 1968 to go on retreat at Taksang. He was in Calcutta briefly, and there he met Father Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk. And he and Thomas Merton made an incredibly strong connection Im immediately, uh, drinking in a bar in a hotel in Calcutta and they did uh, various things together in India, finding that they were in so many ways on the same page about things. And I've written a number of articles about this. So he and Father Thomas Merton promised that they would meet in Scotland at Samye Ling and that they would publish uh, some uh, articles and uh, uh, publications together. 
and do commentary on each other's scriptures. But of course, Thomas Merton died by accident, accidental electrocution in Bangkok at the end of 1968. And on the morning of Thomas Merton's death, he was speaking to a, a monastic conference in Bangkok. And in that speech, he talked about meeting Rinpoche and how marvelous their connection was and about uh, the things they were going to do together in the future. But within a few hours, he had died through accidental electrocution. Rinpoche went back to England, very deeply moved by his connection with Thomas Merton and very moved to carry on dialogue with others like Merton who he had met and when Rinpoche came to the, to the United States and eventually founded Naropa University, he had a vision of interreligious dialogue being an integral part of Naropa's curriculum and purpose. I came to Naropa in January of 1978 and Rinpoche was designing what he called a yogi school at Naropa, where he would invite great teachers of different world religions to come and live together in community with their students, each of these communities being able to live together with uh, appreciation and respect and support, and that dialogue would bind everyone together. 1978 was a time that was not friendly toward contemplative religions at all. And he felt that banding together and living together in community would strengthen practice for everyone. In 1981, Rinpoche founded a series of Buddhist Christian dialogue conferences and they were designed to be the beginning of what would eventually become multi-religious dialogue conferences that never were to uh, arise. And I was the director of those conferences and worked with Rinpoche on those conferences, but also talked with him about dialogue because he never passed up an opportunity to meet with a contemplative from any of the religions. And he was a very close dialogue partner with people like Reb Zalman Schachter from the Jewish tradition. Uh, he's known for this dialogue with Gerald Red Elk, who was a Native American elder who came to meet him at Shambhala Mountain Center. And they had a very powerful exchange up on the encampment grounds he had a love of Sufi teachers and Hinduism teachers, uh, knew many, many different spiritual leaders and teachers around the United States. And when we set up these dialogue conferences at Naropa, he was very specific about how he wanted to set up dialogue. It's important to understand that at that time, the primary way that dialogue was taking place around the United States at least was 
polite exchanges between people who were from different religious traditions who were trying to subtly or overtly say their religion is the one right one and trying to convert everyone else. And Rinpoche didn't want that kind of conference at all. He wanted deep and powerful conversations of the kind that he had with Thomas Merton in India. And he dedicated these conferences to the memory of Thomas Merton. So we had seven of these conferences in the 1980s and Rinpoche handpicked the people who we invited so that there would be diversity, but he also wanted to make sure that he found people who were really not about conversion, but about inquiry, about mutual exploration and growth. So years later, looking back on the work that I did with Rinpoche in those years that led to me being involved first with the Naropa conferences and then with other dialogue groups around the world, I realized that Rinpoche came to the dialogue world with his own orientation and training that shaped very much how he wanted to do dialogue at Naropa. He came from a, an informal tradition in Tibet known as the Rime tradition. Rime, which means unbiased. And the Rime movement was a 19th century Tibetan movement loosely organized. It was not a philosophic school, but more a stance. The Rime tradition, the, the main founders were Jomon Kensei Wangpo and Jomon Kontrol the Great. But there ended up being a number of others like Mipam the Great as well, and others who were very much about this. The Rime approach was described as to follow your own chosen path with dedication while maintaining respect and tolerance for all other valid choices. So let me read this again. This is from the work of Jomon Kanto the Great. He said, to adopt the Rime approach means to follow your own chosen path with dedication while maintaining respect and tolerance for all other valid choices. The Rime movement in 19th century Tibet became concerned that there were beautiful lineages of practice that were disappearing in Tibet because of oppression politically from the Gelugpa establishment and that there was some kind of loss, spiritual loss that was going to happen in Tibet with these various uh, practices texts, transmissions, and schools being lost. The Rime masters included wandering yogis, monastic scholars, and respected masters of meditation. And the basic view was 
which came from Jomon Control the Great, was that Buddha Shakyamuni, recognizing the diversity of peoples and styles and meanings, Buddha Shakyamuni taught 84,000 different teachings. And since it is unknown which teaching will influence which being, it's best to collect them all so that no one will miss her or his unique opportunity. So the idea was to collect and preserve all contemplative lineages and make sure that they are fostered and uh, supported in their continuation. Uh, Jomon Control the Great said that uh, any kind of bias in spiritual tradition is one of the surest signs of the dark age and that the Buddha himself was without bias and that Buddhists are not meant to be biased toward any uh, spiritual tradition. So looking back on how Rinpoche created the first conferences and the principles he used in how he chose people and his attitudes toward others, it seems very much a Rime approach. And I wanted to describe four char characteristics of a Rime approach that are evident in Rinpoche's uh, teaching and creation of dialogue opportunities. The first feature is Rime is primarily interested in meditation and contemplative practice as the ground of spiritual life. That is practice and meditation is the core of the interest in Rime. And in choosing people to come to dialogues, Rinpoche stayed away from the theologians, the philosophers, the ethicists. He wanted people primarily who were known as contemplatives people who focused on contemplative practice as the foundation of spiritual life. For historical Rime, the primary focus was saving the practice texts, saving the rituals, and secondarily being concerned about philosophy, but the practices coming first, and making sure that there are living teachers who carry the practices and who can teach those practices to others and any supporting texts to keep these practices alive and continuing. So Rinpoche went especially for the contemplative orders of Catholic monasticism and he went to Quakers and he went to Eastern Orthodoxy, particularly those who were more on the mystical side for people who he sought out for dialogue. In all of this, he emphasized personal communication, peer relationships, and listening and sharing from practice, not from theology. So theology philosophy for him came later. The most important was practice. The second characteristic of Rime that he emphasized. This comes from the classic descriptions. Rime advocated that all traditions of meditation practice 
are to be appreciated, valued, and preserved, regardless of the lineages or schools from which they have come. So Rinpoche actively sought out contemplative, contemplatives of all traditions he could find in the West, and he saw they needed support and needed recognition in order to be assured of being able to continue what they were doing. So this notion of preserving them all doesn't mean that we, if we're in a dialogue situation, that we are taking on the religion or spirituality of our dialogue partner. We can stay firmly grounded in our own practice, our own training, and can open very much to others. And personally, I have found that interreligious dialogue has strengthened my practice and strengthened my connection with the deepest roots of Shambhala while keeping my mind open about diversity and difference in religion. This is a very important part. The third category of Rime is that meditation should not be the only thing it's important to be supported in our meditation through classical training in scriptures, in history, in lineage, so that we aren't just dumb meditators. And so the people he invited to dialogue were people who had had a thorough training and were able to speak from scripture, from the commentaries of their traditions. Meditation always first, but supported with the classical training that, that everyone is to receive. Jomon Kontra the Great said, the Buddha is without beginning or end. The original Buddha is without bias. And then the fourth characteristic of Rime that you can see in how Rinpoche arranged things is that Rime should not just be a few nerdy, highly educated intellectuals getting together, but it should be accessible and open to meditators with many different orientations, whether they be monastic or yogic or lay, whether they be highly educated or not so educated, that there should be a sense of a broad reach and a broad level of inspiration for everyone so that everyone develops a more curious, inquiring attitude toward religious difference. So the Rime view was not to reject one path, like and say monasticism is the only way, or the lay path is the only way, or you know, being highly educated or being more devotional. All of these paths are to be respected and included, which is a really beautiful aspect. So um, I think I'm going to pause there and see we have about, I'm, I, I know that Faraday, you need some time in about three or four minutes, three or four minutes from now. I think we have about five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what I wanted to say is that next time I'm going to be going much more into the skills of dialogue and we're going to be doing some dialogue exercises together. But I'd like to see what questions you have so far, so far about what I've said.
David Takahashi has asked about David Stendelbrost, who was one of the uh, foundational people in our dialogues in the 80s, and he became a very close friend. Brother David Stendelbrost, who's a Benedictine brother, remarkable dialogue partner and very close dialogue partner of the Vidyadaris. And Father Thomas Keating, another one as well. So Greg Smith has a question. Hello, Judith. Hi, Greg. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Um, so I was wondering um, why the Naropa contemplative, I mean, uh, comparative religion and uh, interfaith uh, dialogue didn't continue. What, what, what went wrong with that? Well, one thing is that when after I had directed seven conferences, uh, I asked to step aside and have others come along. And Naropa never really found anyone stepping up to lead those conferences. But instead, the work that I did at Naropa became part of courses in interreligious dialogue for uh, students. And uh, we, I also, with my students, have done many, many dialogue events at Naropa, inviting people, uh, doing dialogue between staff members and such. I think it was more a matter of uh, Naropa's leadership priorities and where to put money. And uh, when I started having uh, babies in the late 80s, I couldn't manage a full-time job plus running these conferences. So I stepped out of running conferences, but I've stayed involved in dialogue all the way through. And I'm hoping that the legacy of dialogue still continues to be important at Naropa. In our religious studies department, we've had a fair, fairly strong emphasis on dialogue as part of our curriculum. And we've had diverse faculty members, uh, rabbis and uh, Native American teachers, uh, Muslims. We've, we've had a, a very diverse faculty and we've always done dialogue events just uh, among ourselves for Naropa, but none of the big national conferences. Thanks for asking that. Maybe uh, someone at Naropa will get inspired to start them up again. I'd be happy to advise. We have a, a question from Rita. Go ahead. Uh, hi. Uh, by the time you said that I had one question, I had type two. So here I go and you can tackle it however you think you can. Um, your topic is dear to me since I was like 18 years old, if not earlier. So I'm curious about were there encounters or connections between the Brazilian educator Paulo Freire and Chogian Trumpa? Did Chogian Trumpa know about this, uh, about Paulo Freire and his approach to education and dialogue? Were there further encounters between Shambhala as it developed as an institution and that tradition? And then my other question is one that comes from really being messed up culturally. I grew up in the Dominican Republic. I was born in New York City. I grew up with island Catholicism, you know, African influences. I come here in, to the States, landed in Pennsylvania, and I did not recognize my own Catholic religion. So it turned me against it. I, I couldn't integrate into it. And so 
how does, in your opinion, one work with integrating the different cultural flavors that religions may take within deep dialogue? So I'll be talking more. Thank you so much, Rita. I'll be talking more about this next week on the skills we need in order to get into deep dialogue together. And I'll be teaching you some of the skills that I teach my students at Naropa to really get under the kind of uh, sense of foreignness to find some kind of common ground to speak. On the issue of Paulo Freire, his work is so profound and I don't know whether Rinpoche knew his work. Rinpoche died, you know, in 1987. And, but the, a number of faculty at Naropa have been very deeply influenced by Paulo Freire's work. I've, I've read it and appreciated a great deal myself. And I know that this work has been influential in higher education a great deal. Uh, Maitripa Institute, uh, which is a Tibetan Buddhist college in Portland, Oregon, is actively using Paulo Freire's work because they didn't have a founding teacher who was oriented so much toward education as the Vidyadara was. And they are using Paulo Freire's work as a model for understanding uh, education and working with difference. So his work is very much in the field at Naropa, even though it wasn't foundational at the time of the founding of Naropa. So I'll be talking more next week about the skills of dropping down and connecting. And if I can put your question off to next week, I hope you can come back. Thank you so much, Judith. Uh, someone has asked me to say, could you next week, uh, if possible, make some remarks about dialogue within Shambhala, for example, between, in quotes, big tent enthusiasts versus lineage devotees? Um, and then the other question in the chat is, which will have to be the last one, um, is Shambhala considered Rime? or Kagyu, Nyingma, or all three, is their tradition as a whole of Shambhala Buddhism, Rime? I, um, I'm going to take the second question and the first question I'm going to address next week. So the second question, um, Rime is not a separate school. It's an attitude toward a diversity and difference. And uh, the Vidyadara was very much a Rime person, and that was his style, his approach, and it was particularly evident in his work founding Naropa University. Naropa has a kind of Rime foundation. So Shambhala has, as a community and as a society, we have Rime elements, but we're going through a hard time and people are tending to retreat into extreme sort of solid views, just like we find in the country as a whole. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring the topic of dialogue out is because I think that dialogue skills could help us rec recover and strengthen our Rime roots, which are totally there. When you read the Shambhala lineage supplication, 
you see that we are Rime. We are Kagyu, we're Nyingma, and we're Shambhala. And those are three specific streams that have come together nurturing who we are. And we have the potential of being more inclusive of, or I should say more friendly and interested and curious about other Tibetan Buddhist communities and other religious communities altogether. But more about this next week. I think our time is just about up. So thank you so much. And I'll turn it over to Faraday. Thank you so much, Jimmer <coughs> Brown. Um, as I do say, or the host says every week, um, Sunday gatherings are offered uh, free of charge. Um, thank you so much for those of you who are able to uh, pay the patron price uh, or make an offering. And those of you who are here for free, um, I always say that's great. That's um, these are meant to be accessible, so it's wonderful um, that you're you're here in that way. Um, however, if it is possible for um, anyone here to make a donation to support Sunday gatherings, it's really appreciated. Um, it helps us bring in amazing teachers and talks like this to keep these going. We now have a podcast, which we're trying to disseminate even more widely than, than Shambhala. Um, any donations you make uh, really help us keep these weekly gathering, gatherings going. And they have been very appreciated um, by people. So if these have been helpful for you, um, please do uh, make a gift in, in any amount. So thank you again, Acharya Simmer Brown. It's always such a delight to hear you speak on anything um, at all, uh, but this is uh, particularly fascinating and, and relevant. And I'm really looking forward to next week, which leads into next week's Sunday gathering is Acharya Judah Simmer Brown, part two. Um, as she said, where there will be more that is specifically about the actual practice um, and skills of dialogue. Thank you all so much for being here. Thanks to our volunteer translators and uh, goodbye for now. Let's close with a bow. Thank you so much, Faraday and Gabriella. Hopefully I didn't talk too fast. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please like and subscribe to the podcast. We hope you can join us again soon. You can find out more about upcoming live Shambhala Sunday gatherings and our podcast at shambhalaonline.org forward slash Sunday dash gatherings forward slash.